0: Well, what are your New Year's resolutions? New Year's resolutions. But enough, uh, perhaps like me, that you refuse to make New Year's resolutions. But what if you made New Year's resolutions, and and hear me out, and you actually accomplished them? Uh, What if you received the goal? What happened if you received the goal of your resolutions? What we value our resolutions can reveal what we value. If you got your resolution, would your life be better just temporally? Or would it be better also eternally? This morning as we begin a new year, it's my prayer that we would resolve to follow and live out Jesus' resolution for us, not just each year, but each day. To seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. This is Jesus' New Year's resolution, well, it really is everyday resolution for each one of us. And it's found, this resolution from Jesus is found nestled in his famous Sermon on the Mount. Uh, If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn to that section of God's Word, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 811. Now, as we begin to dive into this section of God's Word, we need to remember where it's situated. Right from the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel... Uh, It declares, this gospel declares that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah and King that the Old Testament promised and pointed forward to. In chapters 1 and 2, Matthew made clear that Jesus' purpose for coming was to save sinners. And then in chapters 3 and 4, Matthew demonstrated that Jesus has the ability, the authority to save sinners because of his sinless character. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, where we find Jesus giving this resolution, we see that Jesus is revealing his authority as the king of God's kingdom. He's teaching the nature of the kingdom and what disciples in his kingdom, how they live. And so as we consider just a small section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount this morning... Uh, It's important for us to understand these things, that this Sermon on the Mount is all about the righteous king who has come to save the unrighteous and to call them on to righteousness. This is demonstrated even in our text. So skip down to verse 33. We're going to look at verses 25 to 34, but look at verse 33 and notice what Jesus says here. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, as I've made clear, what I want to argue with you today, politely argue with, by the way, I want to argue with you today, is that this is Jesus' New Year's resolution for you. It's actually, again, his everyday resolution. Let's go ahead and read the whole passage now. Follow along as I read verses twenty five to thirty-four of Matthew chapter six. Do you see there? Verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. And why are you anxious about clothing? Even the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore... Will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Well, three times in this passage, verses 25, 31, and 34, Jesus tells his disciples what not to do. Do not be anxious. And by using the word therefore in each of those instances, Jesus is signaling, he tells his disciples what to do, not to be anxious. And once and only once, he tells his disciples what to do but to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, do you see there in verse 33, because Jesus uses that word but, he is intentionally contrasting one way of life to another. He's saying to poor, anxious Christians, live differently because you are loved differently. Over and over in this passage, Jesus is telling us, beloved children of God, heavenly affection means you have no need for earthly anxiety. We're going to look at this passage under two simple headings. One, do not be anxious. Two, seek first the kingdom. Now, I know those points are not imaginative, but I think they're intelligible from the text. So here's the sermon in a sentence. Resolve to love God first because he first loved you. Resolve to love God first because he first loved you. That's what it means to seek the kingdom and his righteousness to love God before all things. And in fact that's where our passage begins. I believe there is an outline there in your uh, bulletins provided and I hope that'll help you follow along. But let's go ahead and dive right into this first point. Therefore I tell you do not be anxious begins with that word therefore. You see it in Matthew 6:25. Therefore I tell you do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Now, when Jesus uses that word, therefore, he is telling his disciples not to be anxious because of the truth that has just gone before that word, therefore. So skip up, if you will, in Matthew chapter 6 to verse 19. See, Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moss nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here Jesus, similarly to our text, tells us what not to do, what to do, and why we do what we do. Jesus tells us not to lay our treasures up our treasures here on earth, in verse 19. Instead, we're to lay up our treasures in heaven, verse 20. And then in verse 21, Jesus tells us that what we do reveals where our heart is at home. You re- recognize that? What we do reveals where our heart is at home. What we treasure reveals where our heart is at home the world. Is our heart are you the wealth of this world or the one who made the world? Is our heart at home in this world? Well, then our wealth and material resources and our anxieties, as we're going to see, will likely largely be dedicated to making a home in this world. Do our hearts desire heaven as our home? Well, then we'll use our wealth and our resources. We'll be anxious to pursue Heaven and to seek first the kingdom, those things which cannot decay or pass away. Where is your heart at home? Skip down to verse 24 now. See Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus says. So, through this, therefore, that begins our text, verse 25. Jesus is saying, look, since you cannot serve God in money, since you can only serve one of them, do not be anxious about the material, the stuff that money can buy, but not secure. I mean, do we recognize that? Money can buy a lot of things, but not keep it safe and secure. Only the maker can. Serve the maker who can secure your to him. Serve God and leave the worries of the world to him. In fact, Jesus gives us seven reasons to not be anxious in our text, and instead to leave the worries of the world to the maker of the world. You see the first reason there in verse 25, reason not to be anxious. Do not be anxious because life is more than material. That's essentially what Jesus says. Perhaps Jesus is speaking to kind of the inner fears of his disciples, those sitting around him listening, thinking, okay, if I can really only serve one master, and you're telling me to serve the maker and not money, then how will I provide for my material needs? What about providing for my family? How can I even survive if I don't think first of my material needs? Do you see how that can make somebody anxious? And that word for anxiety in our text carries with it the idea of distracted cares and concerns. Think about like constantly looking away from what you're supposed to be focused on because of another concern. You need to keep your eyes fixed on the road. Forget that your phone is buzzing or dinging or whatever it's doing in the car. Please keep your eyes on the road. But that's what anxiety is. It's distracted about other lesser things. I wonder if you can also see how the apparent practice of can also be a cover. apparent practice of prudence, looking to our daily needs first can also be a cover for the pursuit of the world. Is not It's not out of the realm of possibility that underneath the pursuit of our material needs, in the guise of prudence, is the pursuit of the world. And as we look at this text, I don't think we can leave that out of Jesus' view, especially with regard to what he's just said about money. Jesus is challenging us to discard the pursuit of money and to devote ourselves to God. Whatever the case may be, whether it's a genuine anxiety welling up or a cover, using prudence. Anxiety, at least, tends to make us look everywhere else but to the one we should be looking to. Anxiety makes us look to money or to me, to ourselves, to alleviate our concerns. But anxiety should make us look to the maker. That's what Jesus is urging us to do. The maker has given you life. That's something more fundamental than food. The maker has given you a body. That's something more fundamental than the clothing that goes on it. Food goes into the body and the clothing goes onto the body. And since God has given you the greater things, will he not also give you the lesser things like food and clothing? In a certain sense, Jesus' answer is life is more than material needs. And notice that Jesus doesn't dismiss material needs. He doesn't say material needs don't matter. He doesn't say we don't need food to live. He doesn't say we don't need clothing for our bodies. You do. Uh, Thank you for all coming dressed this morning and you're welcome, by the way, Um, Jesus doesn't say that material needs don't matter. What Jesus says is this, life is more than material needs. Do you want to know why you should serve the maker and not money or material needs? Because they're not ultimate or all there is. You have spiritual needs too, and those can only be met by serving the maker. In fact, part of what Jesus is saying is that the maker, the maker will meet your material needs. There's a reason why you don't need to worry about them. The maker will worry about them for you. He will meet them. He supplies those who serve him. Why? Because you're more beloved than the birds. Did you see that in verse 26? That's Jesus' next reason. Don't be anxious because you are more beloved than the birds. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into the barns, and yet... Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of m- that God loves us or cares about us? You know, when we're anxious, we often doubt that God loves us or cares about us, or cares about the situation we, we find ourselves in. But Jesus is saying He does love us. He does care about us, and in a special way. And when Jesus says that the birds neither sow nor reap nor gather into the barns, He's saying that they're not storing up their treasures on Earth. They're not trusting in their own wise planning and saving to feed themselves. They're not trusting in themselves to secure or to solve their own food insecurity. They're eating richly from your heavenly Father's provision. He is the source of their sustenance. He will be the source of your sustenance. After all, he is, as Jesus says there in verse 26, your heavenly Father. If Imperfect heavenly fathers make sure their children do not go hungry, then won't your perfect heavenly father make sure you are fed? If your heavenly father is so generous to care for his creation in general, like the birds, then won't he care for those whom he has brought into his? The way that Jesus is speaking of God as your. Now, here's the thing the way that Jesus is speaking of God as your heavenly father doesn't apply, actually, to everyone on earth. I think there's a sense in which it is true that God is the Father of all mankind. But in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is especially speaking to his disciples. You could go to the beginning of the sermon to see that they've sat down and listened to him teach. He's especially speaking about his disciples, those who love him and follow him, and who've been invited into God's family. It's true that God is the father of all in a general sense, but he is especially the father of those who trust in his son and the salvation that Jesus secured to such as believe in him. In 1692, the Puritan minister Thomas Watson published his book, A Body of Practical Divinity. Uh, There Watson wrote, See the amazing goodness of God, that he is pleased to enter into the sweet relation of a father to us, That when we were enemies and our hearts but mercy in being our Father. That when we were enemies and our hearts stood out as garrisons against God, he his name and put his image upon us and bestow a kingdom of glory. What a child of mercy is this? Is that you? Are you especially a child of God? One who's been your heavenly father. If you have trusted in Jesus for your salvation, then God is your heavenly Father. And Jesus, then he will also feed you. If he shows love to the birds, then how work we do? After all, the, the birds work, don't they? They go and they get their food day by day. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have to work. We do. What it means is that we don't have to worry. We can trust our needs. Just as he met the daily needs of the birds so he will give you daily bread. And if his eye is on the sparrow, then you know that he watches over you. If he watches over you and meets your needs, then friend, you're wasting your time worrying. Do you see that? Do not be anxious, because it's a... Verse 27, we learn the third reason for why we should not be anxious. Do not be anxious, because it's a waste of time. I mean, Jesus, he asks a rhetorical but penetrating question, doesn't he? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? I mean, when you're anxious, ask yourself this question from Jesus. Ask yourself, will my anxiety add to my life? Will this anxiety lengthen my life or steal seconds away from my life? The anxious are often paralyzed. And rather than add time, they lose time. It is unproductive to be anxious. So what do we do when we're anxious? Well, Jesus tells us there in verse 33, doesn't he? Seek the kingdom and his righteousness. Go to the God who loves you and cares about you. We could put that pursuit in the words of Psalm 55, verse 22, where we read, cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. Or 1 Peter 5, 7 says it like this, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Or Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition and by supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Beloved, don't spend your time being anxious. Spend it going to the Lord in prayer. Carrying everything to Him is not time wasted. It's time well spent. What will worrying add to your life? What will going to the Lord add to your life? loves His children that He will provide for them. That's the fourth reason. That Jesus gives for not being anxious. Verse 28 to 30. Verses 28 to 30. Jesus essentially says. Do not be anxious because God will provide. Like he did with the birds. Jesus tells us to look at the lilies of the field. And learn this lesson. And of these verses. Verses 28 to 30. uh, The good Dr. Ryle pointed out. That he who takes thought for perishable flowers. Will surely not neglect the bodies. In which dwell immortal souls. Year after year. The lilies of the field grow and glorify God as he clothes them with unsurpassed beauty. And the lilies put forth no effort in their beauty. God clothed them. Not only that, but if God clothes the grass of the field with beautiful emerald green, and it has such a short life, will he not care for those he loves and those who will live with him for eternity? Again, Jesus' point is that that God cares about and provides for those things which are of lesser value than he will most certainly care for and provide for his beloved children. And at this point, Jesus turns to address the heart of the matter. Verse 30 ends with a gentle, chiding, and gracious confrontation from our Savior. His point in verses 28 to 30 is well taken. If God provides for the lesser things, then Won't he certainly provide for you? That question is piercing enough, but did Jesus really have to add, oh, you of little faith? Without that little phrase, we might be left thinking that all that is needed is a change of perspective. And that's true. We do need a change of perspective. But with that change in perspective, we also need a change of heart. We need repentance. I mean, Romans 14, 23 tells us that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Does anxiety proceed from faith? When we're anxious, we need to confess that we have not believed that God loves us, cares for us, and has committed himself to provide for us, as he says he will here in his word. We need to believe truer and better and bigger about our God. We need to believe what he has revealed to us about himself. That little phrase, O you of little faith, is not unkind or uncaring from our Lord. This is the most kind, most loving, and most caring thing he can say to his disciples, to those with anxious souls, to us. Our anxiety reveals our little faith. Do not be anxious, because it's not of faith. And think about what Jesus is doing here. The goal of this loving confrontation is not to leave us condemned in our sin, but to call us actually onto faith in him. Don't get stuck in condemnation, Christian. Christian, God does not condemn you. And if he does not condemn you, then no one should or can, including you. Remember, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. Too often we think of this kind of confrontation, this clear, gentle, chiding, chastising. We think of it as unloving and harsh, but beloved, recognize that along with our Savior saying, anxiety is fruitless, anxiety is futile, anxiety is faithless, our Savior is also saying, God is the gracious heavenly Father who is committed to keeping, caring, and providing for you. Jesus' chastisement comes coupled with comfort and an invitation to trust your God who will console you and care for you. Our God is great and good and gracious, and our great God is worthy of great faith. This is the difference between God's people and the Gentile people's. I think actually a better translation for that word Gentiles there in verse 32 might actually be pagans or worldly people. Living with little faith is living like a pagan, a worldly person, a person who has no faith. To have these distracted cares dominate our lives, control our thoughts, order our behaviors is to live like the world who believes that there is no God and that this world is all there is. The pagans Do not see His hand in feeding the birds. But Christian, you can. The pagans cannot see His hand in clothing the lilies. But Christian, you can. The pagans cannot see His hand in causing the rain to fall and refresh the earth. But Christian, you can. The pagans cannot see His hand causing the sun to shine. But Christian, you can. The creation declares the glory of God to you. Glimpse it every day. He has given us a beautiful day today to look at and to see and to behold His care for the earth. Glimpse, smell the roses. I mope it in, like take it in. Stop and smell the roses. I mean it. Just see what God has done. Behold His care for the creation, and remember that that is of less value to him than you he loves you behold his creation he's teaching you a lesson through it and from it allow the rain and the sun to nourish and grow your faith ask yourself how it came to be how it continues to be and who the one who made it all how he loves you jesus he turns our attention to the creation and God's care for it, as a way of teaching us that he cares for us. Now, if verse 30 ended with a question chiding us for our little faith, uh, then verse 32 ends with a truth calling for great faith. At the end of verse 32, Jesus says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. I mean, here Jesus He's giving us another reason why we don't need to be anxious. Do not be anxious because God knows what you need. He knows everything. He knows your needs better than you. the things you need that you don't realize you need. He knows your needs better than you do. And look at the truth that Jesus ushers in again to encourage our faith in God. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Here Jesus is saying when anxiety turns up and turns you around and around, turn to God and trust him. He's your Father. As much as Jesus is telling us to turn away from anxiety, he is telling us to turn to our Father and to place our faith in him. Consider this. Your Father knows your condition. He knows your needs. And he is committed to meeting them because he's committed to you. If he gave you bread and breath today, he has shown you grace on this day. He has met your needs this day. And there's still something more that we should see in our daily provisions and our Father's daily providence to meet our needs. We should see God's faithfulness to give us what we need. I mean, think about it. You've started a new year. I don't know when your birthday falls. Some of you, it falls on today. And you should say happy birthday to that person. But how many days have you been alive on this earth? How many days And the Lord has given you daily bread and met your needs more than 3,000 days? You've seen more than three thousand practical examples of the Lord's faithfulness. Years, then the Lord has given you daily bread for more than seven thousand days. You've seen more than if you've been alive for forty years, the Lord of the Lord's faithfulness and love to you in your life. If you've been alive for forty years, the Lord's given you daily bread for more than fourteen thousand days. You've seen more than fourteen thousand practical years, then the Lord has given you daily bread for more than 21,000 days, faithfulness in your life. I could keep going, but you get the point. God has provided you bread each day, and that he has sustained your life thus far should tell you something about his faithfulness and love. He does not, extending his care to them. He can bring his children bread of meeting their material needs, of extending his care to them. He can be trusted, and you should trust him. Now there's one final reason I want to point out to you right now that Jesus says not to be anxious. We find it there in verse 34. Jesus says, do not be anxious because today has enough trouble. <laughs> anxiety, it tends to look toward future events and circumstances. right? When we but anxiety is often something we usually have to deal with it and address it right there in that moment. But anxiety is often forward trouble. Don't add to it in which Jesus is saying, Uh, Look, your day is already full of trouble. Don't add to it by fruitless, futile, and faithless fretting. Beloved, the Lord knows, and he's already sovereignly deemed necessary for us. (laughs) And there's no need for us to add more trouble today than he's already sovereignly deemed necessary for us. Use the strength and the energy that you have for today that he's given to you to deal with today's troubles. More urgent and important than tomorrow's troubles are today's troubles. Tomorrow's troubles may not even come as you have imagined them. How many times have you fretted or worried about a particular trouble that you thought would emerge in the future that in God's kindness never came? I mean, the anxious fretting accomplished nothing, and so we should return to our duties today and do them diligently. When anxieties about tomorrow's exams or doctor's appointments Test results or meetings or whatever it may be emerge. Take them to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Jesus is not. Duties the Lord has placed before you today. To be clear, uh, Jesus is not calling wise future planning sinful. Rather, he is. We may wisely plan for the future. That may even be a part of today's troubles or duties. Still, any prudent planning for the future, which discounts God's providential prerogative, does not recognize that we may plan, but the Lord directs our steps, and that the Lord has ultimate control, and He's in ultimate control, and we can trust Him. All in all, our Savior is calling us to live differently today because we're loved differently and have been from before time began. Jesus is calling us to dispose of our earthly anxieties because we have a heavenly Father who's devoted to us. He made us, he loves us, he's numbered our days, he provides for us, he's faithful to us, he knows our needs, he knows how much trouble we can take today. This is why we should live differently, because we're loved differently. We should love God first and foremost because he has loved us first. The call to live a different life has been implicit throughout most of the verses of our passage, but in verse 33 The call to live differently is made explicit. Let's turn and consider our second point. Read Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 now. Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The verse begins with a clear contrast. That word but means to signal for us a different way of life. A life that is totally contrary to the life of the anxious pagans. What kind of life is the opposite of the anxious life? What kind of life is different from the fruitless, futile, and faithless life of fretting? The kind of life that seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And trusts God to add all of these things unto us. Well, this verse, it not only contrasts two ways to live, but it contains a command from our Savior. He tells us to seek. Saying no to anxiety does not mean saying no to ambition. Let me say that again. This is really important. Saying no to anxiety does not mean saying no to real needs. But Jesus says we need to be ambitious for his kingdom. Quite the contrary. Our Lord tells us to go after something, right? To pursue, to chase, to strive. The word seek here literally means to try to obtain something from someone else. Jesus has an agenda for you this year, this day, and every day of your life. Jesus wants you to seek his kingdom and his righteousness and to keep on seeking it. Jesus wants you to be ambitious for him and his kingdom. And he wants you to do it first. Did you notice that? Now, uh, biblical commentators and scholars are quick to rush in and say things like this. First does not here mean first in time but of first importance. The kingdom is not one of among many competing aims for the disciples, but that which comes first of all. That's a quote from a faithful commentator, and which in the main I think is right. First does not here mean first in time, but of first importance. That's true, and yet I want to urge you to consider that those things which we tackle and take on first in time often reveal... Make the kingdom the first us, at least in the moment. Make the kingdom the first thing you give your thoughts, time, talent, and treasure to. I, I kind of want to tell you, kingdom, not just your kingdom first, and seek it actually first in time. Make the pursuit of God's kingdom not just your first aim, your first priority, but first on your daily agenda. Care for your soul before the day is given over to the cares of this world. Make the kingdom the first thing you give your thoughts to. Now, I'm not saying that you have to start reading your Bible and praying before you get up and have your cup of coffee and morning shower. Uh, I think that when you read your Bible and pray, the Lord means for you to be awake and attentive and engaging with him. So if you need a cup of coffee and a morning shower before you begin your time of Bible reading and prayer this year, that is fine. You know how easy it is, though, to dive into the day And before you know it, the day is gone and you're exhausted. I do not make it a law. This is not law's law. I do not make it a law. But there is wisdom in seeking the kingdom first in order of time, even in your day. I'm not trying to go that you consider that your day begins with seeking the kingdom first, whatever time that might be. But beloved, before you seek that paycheck, seek that kingdom it is not of this world. Before you seek the news, seek the good news. Before you seek to honor your earthly boss, seek to honor your heavenly one. Throw your mind back to the Lord's Prayer, which was near the beginning of Matthew chapter 6. Have you ever noticed that the first petitions are entirely focused upon God? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then what? Then. It's give us this day our daily bread. Before you are tempted to build your kingdom on earth, seek to build the kingdom of heaven. Make the kingdom the first thing you give your time to. Not just your thoughts, but your time to. When you start to look at your schedule and decide how you're going to dole out your time across the day or the week or the month, the year, make sure that you apportion your time to the kingdom first. As one brother in our congregation loves to say, your Sundays are booked. Uh, In his revelation, the Apostle John has at least one implication of that phrase, the Lord's Day. It belongs to Jesus. It doesn't belong to soccer. It belongs to the Savior. It doesn't belong to swim. It belongs to the Savior. It doesn't belong to any sport. It belongs to the Savior. Make the kingdom the first thing you give your time to. And if, if you find it beneficial to your soul, to participate in a small group or a community group or Wednesday night Bible study, then try, as you can, to put that on your calendar before other things start to claim time. Make the kingdom the first thing you give your time to. Make the kingdom the first thing you give your talents to. What talent has the Lord given to you, entrusted to you, that you might use to serve and honor and glorify him? In what ways has he uniquely given gifts to you to steward for the furtherance of his kingdom. Maybe you're gifted in music, and you can help serve the congregation, sing. Uh, Maybe he has gifted you in artistry, and you can help to continue to beautify our building. Uh, Maybe he's gifted you with teaching, and you can seek out opportunities to serve him in Sunday school. Uh, Maybe he has gifted you in maintenance, and you can help care for our property. Maybe he's gifted you in cooking, and you can bring a meal to members in need. Maybe he's gifted you in in organization, and there's some area of our church's life that you've noticed that could use just perhaps a little more order. Maybe he's gifted you in communication, and you can help us stay in better contact with our supported workers and missionaries so that we can better pray for them as a congregation. Whatever it may be, prayerfully consider the talents that the Lord has given to you and how you can use them to help further his kingdom here and around the world. And while we're still on seeking first the kingdom, remember that I said, to make the kingdom the first thing you give your thoughts, time, talent, and treasure to. And that means I need to say a word about your treasure. Uh, I'm hesitant to do this because you are a congregation who is incredibly faithful to give to the work of the kingdom. Nevertheless, because we live in this world and are tempted by the things of this world, I think it's valuable to make an application in this arena. Make the kingdom the first thing you give your treasure to. When the Lord is pleased to provide for you financially, be sure to give first to the advancement of his kingdom. Give first to the advancement of his kingdom rather than your comfort or mortgage principal or 401k or the home renovation project or the kids' college tuition or the entertainment fund or the family vacation or whatever it may be that tempts you to value the things of this world over the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom, especially in your finances. What was it that Jesus said in verse 24? You cannot serve money and the maker. One way you show that you serve the maker and not money is by giving to his kingdom first. Jesus, he not only tells us to have different ambitions than the pagans, he not only prioritizes the pursuit, seeking it first, but he also specifies it. Jesus tells us what to pursue. He tells us to pursue His kingdom. If the pagans seek the world first, then Jesus' disciples are to seek his kingdom first. He tells us to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I love the way that Matthew Henry puts it. He says that heaven is our end and holiness is our way. Heaven is our end and holiness is our way. Beloved, Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom. His redemptive rule and reign has begun, and his realm is nothing less than heaven and earth. The totality of Jesus' kingdom has not yet been come under the reign of the king as they. To seek the kingdom of God means that we come under the reign of the king as his saved subjects who trust in his righteousness and seek to further and advance upon the king. So You see, the kingdom of God is entirely focused upon the king. So friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, of King Jesus, then I want to invite you to seek his kingdom by seeking salvation in him. You know that you have sinned against God. You know that you have sought to build your own kingdom, living your own way rather than God's way. For your rebellion, you deserve to face God's just wrath forever in hell. And friend, you're not alone. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all attempted to build our own kingdoms. But the good news of the Bible is is that God has offered salvation in his son. He has not only provided for the needs of sinners like you, providing food and bread through his creation, but he has also provided for our salvation. His creation is a great gift. But his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is an even greater gift. Jesus, he lived a sinless life of righteousness. He perfectly served God, the Heavenly Father. He lived a sinless life on the cross, and he died on the cross in the place of sinners. He offered his life as a substitute and a sacrifice to pay the debt of our sin. And three days after our death, after his death, God raised him from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that in him is eternal life. Jesus, he ascended to his throne. He rules and reigns in heaven as king. And he promises that one day he will consummate his kingdom. And friend, Jesus invites you to become his servant and his subject in his kingdom by turning from your sin and by trusting in him for salvation. By trusting and believing that he lived for you and that he died for you and that he was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. Friend, if you would seek the kingdom of God, you must seek Forgiveness from the king. And Jesus is eager and ready to forgive. Go to him now. Do not delay. Trust him today. And if you want to know more about what it means to seek the king for salvation and entrance into his kingdom, please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this good news, about what it means to be a subject and a servant. The kingdom of God first. And Christian, I want to urge you to seek the kingdom of God first. This year... Brother or sister, how can you seek the kingdom of God in the lives of the neighbors around you? How can you seek the kingdom of God in the lives of coworkers or family members or friends? How can you seek the kingdom of God, the redemptive rule of Jesus, in the lives of others? Let me suggest to you three ways pray for them, pray for these loved ones, pray for friends and family members and neighbors and coworkers, put them on your prayer list. And pray for them. Plead with them. Open the Bible to them. Read the scripture to them. And plead with them to believe in Jesus. And provide them with a faithful witness to Jesus. Not just in lip, in pleading with them, but also in life. Notice what Jesus says in verse 33. He says, not only to seek the kingdom of God, but also and his righteousness. This year, beloved... Go hard after holiness. Remember that you live as a citizen of heaven. Let God's will in heaven be done on earth and be done righteousness. Seek the kingdom and grace of the Holy Spirit. Say no to sin and say yes to his righteousness. Seek the kingdom and seek to live out the righteousness of our king. Worship the maker and leave the word promise there in verse That is much of what Jesus has been saying. But what should we make of that promise there in verse 33 at the end of it? Do you see it? All these things will be added to you. Is this true? I mean, after all, haven't there been Christians who have suffered and even starved? I mean, just think of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, he says that he suffered in toil and in hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst often without food, in cold, and exposure. Aren't those the very things that Jesus promised that God would add to those who seek the kingdom? I mean, wasn't that what Paul was doing in all of his pursuits? Given that Paul was in hunger and in thirst, often without food, he says, in cold and exposure. Jesus can't be promising that if we seek first his kingdom, yes, he can. Can he? Yes, he can. God will provide for our needs. This is what he has promised. Paul had what he needed, even when he was in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. He was able to write after that experience to testify to God's faithfulness to the Corinthians. God sustained him through it. But what should we make of this promise in light of those who don't survive such circumstances? What should we make of those who know, we know, that we're seeking the kingdom, who starved to death or who died naked? Sometimes God in his wise providence chooses to bring his servants home to himself through the challenging means of being without food or being in cold and exposure. Because what he judges Most to be that they need most in that moment is to be with Him, to come home to the kingdom of heaven. If and when God in His wise and sovereign providence chooses to bring His servants home through being without food or being in cold and exposure, then we need to recognize that God is doing it for His glory and for their good. And He is judging that they have a greater need to be met in that moment than the sustenance of their earthly life. If that is how God chooses to bring one of his servants home, then believe that God is accomplishing something greater than the sustainment of their temporal, earthly life. After all, didn't the king of the kingdom himself endure such trials too? Didn't the one who uttered these very words go through similar trials? Didn't he our Lord Jesus, have no place to rest his head? Didn't he go without food? So much so that his family worried over his mental and physical health. Didn't the troubles of tomorrow, his death in the distance, threaten to creep into his today and make him anxious about tomorrow? Didn't he die without clothing didn't the one who sought and served the kingdom of God his whole life long die in naked, nakedness and exposure? He did. And God was accomplishing something greater than the sustainment of his physical life. He was accomplishing. You see, when Jesus says, kingdom for all of those who would trust in him as king. You see, when Jesus says, don't be anxious about all of these things. He knows what it means to trust God. For all of them. And as long as God chooses to foresee, we need. At every moment we need it. And as long as God chooses to forestall the return of the king. To consummate his kingdom. Then that means that there will come a moment in each of our lives. When God in his wise providence. Chooses not to sustain our lives on earth. But to bring us home to himself. For eternal life with him. And just as we don't need to be anxious about Each and every day, we don't need to be anxious about that day, the day of our death. When that day comes, when our God judges that our greatest need is to be with him, we can trust him. We can actually follow in the path of our Savior and say what we should say every day. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. If we serve a God who will care for us on our last day, and every day into eternity, then we can trust him with every day before that. We can seek his kingdom first because more than all of the material things that we think we need, glory will be added to us that day. Beloved, resolve to love God first. For he has first loved you in Christ, and he will love you to the last day and even beyond that last day. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you so love us, that you testify to your love for us every day in the creation as you feed the birds and clothe the lilies of the field. You testify to us of your love for us by causing the rain to fall and the sun to shine. But most of all, you testify to us of your love for us in the death of your beloved Son and our Savior and King. Father, would you help us day by day, to entrust our souls and our whole lives into your hands, just as our Savior did. Father, would you help us, like him, to seek your kingdom and your righteousness for the glory until you call us home? Father, would you help us to do that this day and every day until you call us home or until you return to bring us home? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.